Uh, I should have mentioned, too, we had three uh, guys come from Communio to uh, join us and work with us and train with us, and one of them is uh, still here with us this morning. So, Eric, uh, wave and say hi. Eric joins us from Missoula, Montana, right? Oh, Billings. Billings, Montana. Uh, he drove here, so he's driving back today, but he's able to be with us today. So, welcome, brother. Good to have you with us. Um, I don't know how many of you are going to be familiar with this fine product uh, from Sweden, surströmming. Anybody familiar with this? I, I think most of us, if we're familiar, we've maybe seen videos of people reacting to this. This is known as one of kind of the the worst smelling, most putrid foods available. It's fermented fish. Yeah, sounds good, right? Um, And you you can search this yourself when you go home, uh, unless you have a a real active gag reflex. You you may want to avoid it, because just watching people in a room reacting to cans of this being opened, uh, the smell of it has been compared to uh, dirty diapers uh, and... uh, Well, that's the worst comparison, I guess, that I saw made. Um, It sounds sort of hideous, but it is also sort of a a staple. Um, I'm not sure if you can, uh, maybe not a staple, but but it's a popular food in Sweden. It goes back uh, centuries. I don't know if you notice, this can is sort of swollen. (laughs) What do you and I know if you go to the grocery store and you see a can that's swollen? You don't buy that one, right? For this product, that's part of the the allure of it because it continues to ferment when it's in the can. And so it produces this gas and these cans swell up like this and that's kind of the mark of some really good surströmming. It might make you wonder, why on earth did somebody set out to make this? And the answer is really interesting, and it's actually really plain. It's not as if someone in Sweden way back when said, let's just make the most disgusting thing we can think to make. It was actually a very practical product. It has everything to do with preserving food, and especially in a world where food wasn't necessarily just a given. They would, they would want to protect it and preserve it. You and I, we might be embarrassed if we added up and really tracked how much food goes bad in our refrigerators that we throw out. But in some of these cultures, that was not an option. There was no throwing out food. And so preservatives were really important. And the most common preservative for something like this is salt. But while we take salt for granted, uh, in, in some eras and in some places of the world, salt was pretty rare and very costly. And so this fermentation process was a way to preserve this fish. In this case, it's herring. It's a special kind of herring that they use. It's a way to preserve it and to protect it so that they could use it for a very long period of time and have food. And Swedish people who still sort of like this, who consider it part of their heritage and their culture, will tell you, well, you don't like eat it out of the can. You know, it's usually put on flatbread with uh, boiled potatoes and onions and butter even, and, and it's kind of rolled up. And, and many of the people who have tried it have said, well, it honestly tastes an awful lot better than it smells. Nonetheless, to us, it's sort of this gross-out thing, you know? It's this thing we look at and we go, ah, oh, that's just... Again, watching people's reactions to it is priceless. When you open this can and think, oh my goodness, I can't believe that smell. It's that level of of, uh, 
grossness that I want us to sort of think about as we consider maybe today's uh, story. First, I want you to grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Luke. We're ultimately going to end up in John, so if you find John first, you might put your finger in it. But we'll start out in Luke chapter 22. We've been discussing the life of Jesus the ministry of Jesus. And we're kind of at the end of this story now. And in fact, we've, we've slowed time down quite a bit, I think appropriately, because the gospel writers do this. If you look at how much space is given to just the events of the final week of Jesus' earthly life, there's a lot more attention given to this period of time. And, and so we have slowed down. We've been in this final week for a few weeks now, haven't we? But in Luke chapter 22, it says in verse 1, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. Now we've studied that together uh, before, but just in case you haven't been with us, and maybe you're not familiar with what this is, or you've heard the term Passover, but you're not sure of what it is. This commemorates God uh, delivering his people, Israel. He sort of specially called them out as a nation and protected them. And they found themselves enslaved by the nation of Egypt. There's a story of him delivering them out of that slavery. And one of the things that happened, this final plague, there's this whole series of plagues that befalls Egypt. And the final one is the firstborn in all of these households was struck dead. But he gave the Israelites a way to guard their household. And they would sacrifice this Passover lamb and paint part of its it's blood on the, the lintel of the doorpost and on the, the door frames. And the angel of death would pass over their house. And so they've been commemorating this for centuries at this point. And this feast is coming up, this feast of the Passover. Verse 2 said, The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put Jesus to death, for they feared the people. We've talked about that before. They can't stand Jesus. They can't stand what he's teaching. They can't stand that he is directly threatening their power structure and their authority. And yet he's also wildly popular. And so to just arrest him in the temple courtyards where he so often is, it's not going to go over well. And so they're, they're struggling with this and grappling with this. And then verse 3 says, Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. And he went away. And he conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And the other gospel writers say he kind of went to them and said, how much money will you give me to do this? <laughs> and they were glad. And they agreed to give him money. So he consented and he sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. And otherwise, or in other words, I'm with Jesus. I'm part of this group that, that travels around with him. I'll give you a heads up when he's going to be away from the crowds, when there's sort of a quiet moment where you can do this in secret. I'll do that for you. And then verse 7 says, Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us so we may eat it. And they said to him, Well, where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. And tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover 
with my disciples, and he will show you a large upper room, furnished. Prepare it right there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. This is one of these really subtle miracles again, you know. Jesus just says, well, just go. You're going to see a guy carrying water. Follow him into his house. Can <laughs> you imagine? <laughs> I know our culture is a little different than theirs was. But if somebody just sort of followed me into my house, I'd be alarmed. <laughs> I'd have some words. But Jesus said, just follow him into the house and then ask him, hey, where's this room that, that you can all have this Passover meal in? And he'll show you the room. Isn't that something else? They do this. Now, turn over to John. Please. I didn't mean to be so bossy. John chapter 13. Because there's this incident that happens in the course of this Passover meal now that only John records. And we've talked about this in the past that, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, collectively they're often known as, as the synoptic gospels. Comes from a Greek word that just means to look at together. Um, and, and they cover a lot of the same material. John, he just sort of does his own thing. And this is one of those instances. But it's such a beautiful, beautiful story. I'm not really sure why John's the only one that recorded it. Other than we know the Holy Spirit was inspiring these writers to write what they wrote. And for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit only prompted John to record this. But in chapter 13, so now before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. We could just stop right there for a minute, right? He knows what's coming. He knows it's time. And he's been telling his disciples and then seemingly a larger audience of people for a little while now. I'm headed to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be killed there. <laughs> he knows his time in this world is drawing to a close. But I love that phrase, he loved them to the end. And as they gather in this room here, verse 2, during supper, and we're reminded by John, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, and he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a the towel that was wrapped around him. This is an incredibly striking scene. And to some of you, it might seem overly extreme to use an example of the surstrumming, this horrible, well, I, should, I shouldn't say horrible, but, but this horrible, stinking, fermented fish, you know, but this was almost the sort of view that was held of, of foot washing. You know, we don't really have this in our culture for good reason. In their culture, they lived pre-pavement, you know. Now, there were areas that had paving stones and bricks, but, 
but pavement and concrete wasn't widely used, obviously. It's a very dry, arid climate, and it's also a culture in which everybody's wearing open-toed shoes, which meant that everybody's feet just got filthy. But also in Hebrew culture, even aside from just the dirt, you know, the feet were just sort of considered kind of this lesser part of the body, an ignoble part of the human anatomy. And this concept of foot washing is a really interesting one for them. It was partly done out of necessity, but the people who did it was curious, was very interesting. If you were of a certain stature, a certain financial status, and you could afford in your household to have servants, then a servant would always do this. And it would sort of be the, maybe even the lowest servant on the totem pole if you had a number of them. You would invite guests into your house. We talked about this in the course of another story that we looked at of Jesus together. When Jesus says to the Pharisee who invited him in, ever since I've been here, you, you never greeted me with a kiss, you, and you never even offered me any water to wash my feet, remember? This was very customary. And again, in houses of a certain standard, as you would enter the house for dinner, you'd be greeted by a servant who would say, let me wash your feet. Let me wash the dirt, the muck off of your feet. And they'd have to be on the ground doing this. It was kind of a low thing, you know. And in most homes that couldn't afford servants, at least, at very least, a basin would be provided of water so that I could wash my own feet. As I came into a house, I'd, I'd sit down and take my sandals off and wash my own feet. But this is sort of relegated to someone who's low within the household, so much so that in Hebrew law, in Jewish thinking, there are a couple references made in the Torah, the first five books of our Old Testament, that say that if you have a fellow Jew that has sold themselves to you to pay off a debt, it's a strange custom to us, but it, it wouldn't have been entirely uncommon to them if they owed so much money to sell themselves to somebody as a servant and say, this is, this is it, this is my last option. I will become your servant, and that's how I will pay off this debt. But the law said, if you have a Jewish servant in your house, don't treat them like a slave. It's really interesting. Don't treat them like a slave. Now, that in and of itself is all the Scripture itself says. But as we've discussed before, Hebrew thinkers and, and, and religious leaders had over the years written volumes sort of interpreting these things and fleshing out, well, what does that mean? And one of the things that they decided it meant was to not treat your Jewish brother or sister like a slave, was that you should not ever make a Jewish person in your household who is your servant wash feet. That was just too far below even a fellow Jew to do this thing. <laughs> That's what they thought of it. Sort of like opening a can of surstroming and just thinking, oh boy, that's... I mean, there were just some places that they just wouldn't go, you know. And here Jesus does something alarming. 
maybe, to some of those who were in the room. As he gets up from the meal, and he takes off his outer clothes, and sometimes this is depicted artistically uh, with Jesus, even without a shirt. There's been some debate about that. Many have said it's, it's probable that he had kind of a tunic on that would have been like a very long t-shirt, you know, but kind of his undergarment, frankly. And then he takes this towel and wraps it around his waist. And then he gets down on the ground with this basin of water. And he starts washing his disciples' feet. And he wipes them with this towel that he's got wrapped around his own waist. It's incredible. So many people have over the, the, his ministry called him rabbi appropriately. They've referred to him as a teacher, a, a leader. And I want to suggest that none of them had ever seen a rabbi, a teacher, one of, one of those who had this sort of high status in their society, get down on hands and knees, remove their outer clothes, and wash the feet of those disciples, those followers of theirs. This is what Jesus is doing, though. Is it really quietly, deliberately? And then it says in verse 6 that he came to Simon Peter. (laughs) I love Peter. I've said before, I love Peter. I get a kick out of Peter. It's funny to see Peter's brain working. And I think as this is going on, it's possible. I I, I don't want to throw Peter under the bus. But it's possible that Peter is thinking in his head, oh, wait, I've got a great, I can't believe that nobody else pushed back again, but watch this. I mean, I, I, Peter may have done this for everyone else's benefit, you know, more than, <laughs> but he's just watching this and waiting, and Jesus gets to Peter. And Peter said, Lord, do you wash my feet? In other words, are you really going to wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And in this case, sort of immediately afterward, Jesus is using this action, this behavior, to teach them something. And he says, just bear with me. You don't understand right this minute what's happening. You will. And then Peter proudly says to I've interjected the proudly. (laughs) But Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Because this is what they thought of this activity in this society, in this culture. That's for the lowest of low people. We don't even make Jewish servants do this in our households. No, Lord. No way. You'll never wash my feet. I mean, it was all well and good that John let you wash his. He's a dope, you know. But not me. I'm in this stratified air, you know, this rarefied place where I just know better. No, Lord, never. (laughs) And Jesus says, very bluntly, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Hmm. That's not a statement on Peter's salvation. But again, Jesus is saying, you don't understand what's happening. 
I'm teaching you something here right now. You have no share with me if you don't let me do this. And so then, Peter says, well then, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. (laughs) Now he wants a whole bath, this guy. He just can't leave it alone. (laughs) And Jesus said to him, the one who's bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. But he's completely clean. And you're clean. But not every one of you, wink, wink, for he knew who was to betray him. And that was why he said, not all of you are clean. And so he finishes washing their feet. And just this, this little interjection about Jesus knowing full well who was in the room. Later on, as he's reminded them that someone right there is going to betray him, and they say, well, who, who is it? And he goes so far as to say, I'm going to dip this morsel of bread into the liquid and hand it to the person who it is. And he gives it to Judas. He knows full well. And yet, as he's washing the disciples' feet, there's every indication that included Judas Iscariot. He's been down on his hands and knees without his outer garments on with this by now filthy towel wrapped around his waist and has washed even the feet of Judas Iscariot. And he gets to Peter and Peter says, no, not me. And Jesus says, no, this has got to happen. And then he finishes in verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? (laughs) You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. I love that. He doesn't try to duck that issue. He says, it's good that you call me Lord, that you call me master. You are absolutely right. That's correct. But then in verse 14, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking to all of you. I know whom I've chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. (laughs) Jesus does this incredible thing, this kind of gross thing in their culture. And then he sits back down at the table and he says, you know what just happened? And of course they don't. He explained to them before, you're not going to understand this for a bit, just bear with me. He says, I just 
set you an example. I'm your Lord, your teacher, your master. He doesn't say it here, but in essence, I'm about to become your savior. But look at what I just did. I did this thing that the rabbis say you shouldn't even have to do for each other. And I did it to teach you something. You now do this for each other. There's something else really interesting about this whole custom of foot washing for them. Because as we've discussed, it's often left to the lowest person in the household, the lowest slave, the lowest servant. Maybe I would do it myself. But in their culture, there was another manner in which it frequently happened. That was within their families. And it would not have been uncommon for, uh, in this culture, a Jewish wife or sometimes the children in the house to wash the feet of the master of the house, the head of the household, the husband, the father. But what's really interesting and curious about that is in that setting, it wasn't done as, I don't want you to get the sense that it was done as some sort of punishment. You know, the wife's got to wash my feet because she's lower than me. That's not the sense that they had about it. Instead, it was this very loving and personal and dare I say, intimate act. Guys, stay with me. I know sometimes we get uncomfortable when we use words like intimacy. But it was this deeply personal, close, intimate thing. This act of love that was performed within a family unit. And that's what I like to focus on even more as Jesus here gets down on his hands and knees and he's doing this very personal thing with them. One that conveys closeness and intimacy and love. And then he says, now, you keep doing this. You. Do this for each other. You see what I just did? If I, your master, your teacher, your Lord, can get down on my hands and knees and wash your feet, then you can do this for each other. Now, just to make sure we're on the same page, is Jesus teaching literally that we ought to be washing each other's feet? I'm gratified to see that most of you are saying no. Some of you still look a little on the fence. That answer is no, though. Uh, if you come to me and ask to wash my feet, I, I won't be particularly comfortable with that, I don't think. <laughs> but again, this was the thing in their society, in their culture, that was maybe most instructive for them. This thing that was only done by someone who was just kind of the lowest or by someone who wanted to show a very great act of love in a very intimate and personal way. And Jesus says, now do this.
for each other. Maybe not literally wash each other's feet, but do this for each other. A scripture reading this morning is from Galatians. Galatians chapter 5 and 6. Galatians 6 verse 2 just says very simply, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Isn't that beautiful? It's the same thing. Bear one another's burdens. As Jesus said, now do this for each other. Do this thing that this is what followers of Jesus look like. Part of the reason that we've been studying Jesus for so long is if one of our our ultimate goals as followers of his is to become Christ-like, to convey Christ likeness. It makes a lot of sense that we know a great deal about Christ, about what he taught, about what he did, what he said, how he behaved. And here he says, I've done this thing for you because I want you to understand that you should do this for each other. Paul in the New Testament writes the same thing. Carry each other's burdens. Now, does that mean washing each other's feet? No, probably not. That's been done by some groups as a symbolic gesture. That's, it's lovely. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. But I think what's being said goes far beyond that. Now, what's interesting about that passage is you may have picked up on the fact that later on in the passage, it also says you got to carry your own burden. <laughs> like there's not this sense of, of carry each other's burdens, therefore ignore your own. Let someone else take care of it. That's clearly not scriptural either. And he makes this case that you ought to be in the business of carrying your own burden and somebody else's burden. But do you know what happens when everyone within a community is sharing each other's burdens? Isn't that a lovely thing? When it doesn't give me license to say, oh, I don't have to worry about my stuff. But rather I say, I've got help with my stuff. And I'm helping with someone else's stuff, someone else's burden. And this is so sacrificial. It's so thinking about someone else which is something that if you haven't noticed by now, I don't think you've been paying very close attention, but Jesus does an awful lot of, doesn't he? And he does this thing that doesn't please him. You know, if I came to you and said, I'm going to serve you tonight. I'm going to help carry your burdens, and so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to show up at bedtime and I'm going to stand at the foot of your bed, and I'm going to serenade you to sleep. I think the vast majority of you would say, please don't do that. As it turns out, that's not helpful to me. That's just sort of self-indulgent for Paul, right? Oh, I forgot to tell you, I'm going to accompany myself with an accordion. (laughs) Oh, yeah, one other thing, I don't actually know how to play the accordion but I'm going to move my arms, and it's going to be great. I'm going to serenade you. Isn't that going to be great? 
You'd say, no. And the couple of you that think that would be great, that's weird. (laughs) What's the matter with you? And what Jesus does, it's not this self-indulgent thing. It's not because he's thinking, I think it would really be fun to wash a bunch of feet. He does it to serve these men whom he loves. And he says, now you do this same thing. Not because it's a thing that you really like and that you really enjoy. Not so that you can pat yourself on the back and say, oh boy, I did it. Church is lucky to have me. But he says, you sacrificially and lovingly do this thing. Share this with each other. Carry each other's burdens. This is how the body of Christ is designed to function. That you and I are actively looking for, even, opportunities to do just this. This isn't something in that upper room that just comes up accidentally. This is something that Jesus, the Son of God, purposed in his heart that he would do, that he would instruct them and say, now you do this same thing. Look for opportunities. Seek out opportunities to carry each other's burdens, to to do this thing. I don't know what that means to you. I mean, that's impossible for me to know. I don't know all, who all is in your life right now, perhaps. What I do know is a lot of us are really good at receiving the burden carrying or receiving the foot washing. We like that stuff, right? And we've discussed before, it even informs our relationship with Jesus at times, where I really like that part where Jesus gives me stuff. But more specifically here, because I want to stay faithful to our text, Jesus here is talking about with each other, not just our relationship with him, but with each other. And I think a lot of us really like the part where we get our burdens carried. I've been there. (laughs) Where I've behaved like a client rather than a member of a body who is actively seeking out opportunities to share somebody else's burden in a way that is sacrificial, in a way that isn't self-indulgent and doesn't just give me ego strokes, but in a way that says, this is something deeply personal and loving that I intend to do for you because it's what we are called to do as we behave like Jesus behaved. Hallelujah. This is our God. I say frequently, no one is like him. (laughs) No one is like our God. Hallelujah. This is what Jesus does. He says, watch this. I'm going to do something for you. When I'm done, I want to make sure you hear this message loud and clear. You do this now for each other that you sacrificially strip yourself down even, figuratively, you understand, 
and wrap a towel around you and get down on your hands and knees and serve each other. This is what I've called you to do. Bear one another's burdens. When you and I are actively seeking opportunities to do just that, not only does this community, this fellowship become so much more sweet, but do you know what that says to our world? Do you know what that says to a world that is desperate to feel loved and, to, and cared for when they see a community who is actively looking for ways in which they can bear each other's burdens? What an incredible thing. You want to preach the gospel? Do it this way. Use words when you need to. But do it this way. Bear one another's burdens. Our Father God, we praise you for your work. And we thank you for this beautiful example. God, we're so blessed to have your word so readily available to us in which you've revealed yourself. And Father, we recognize that our study of it is not just this academic thing, that it's part of what you use to shape us, to mold us, and we don't want to miss this message this morning. That we are to bear each other's burdens. That as Jesus Christ himself, Lord of everything, the one without whom nothing in our universe could even exist, took off his garments, got down on his hands and knees, and in a very personal and loving way, washed the feet of his disciples even the one that was about to go out and betray him, that that would be our mind, that that would be our heart. To seek out ways to carry each other's burdens. And Father, we do pray, if there is anyone here this morning that hasn't yet accepted your incredible gift of salvation, that hasn't yet stepped into a relationship with you, not just after we die, but here and now. That they would recognize this morning that the work has been done in full by Jesus Christ. There's no ritual. There are no fancy words. There are no special activities that need to be performed. It's all been done by Jesus. And that simply by faith, we can accept this precious gift that your grace has provided for us and have a relationship with the God, the living God of our universe that is close and personal and redemptive. Thanks to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for that. We praise you for that. We love you for that. And we pray that we would be a people actively behaving as Jesus behaved. As he said, you do this for each other now. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.